So how, as believers, do we travel well on this journey of faith? Who should you travel with? What are the things that you should pack as you go? And what are the things that you shouldn't pack as you go? Well, this morning I want to just begin a short sermon series on this idea of traveling, on this idea of baggage and the things that we carry. And the Bible tells us a lot about what's required for this journey of faith and what is not. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me uh, to the book of Philippians in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning, beginning in verse 1. Paul, who wrote this letter, says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, starting in verse 1, we see joy and rejoicing is a big theme in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And Paul is saying, find satisfaction, find joy in the Lord. And Paul says in verse 1, he's told this church before, maybe when he was with the church in person. And he says that this rejoicing is safe for them. The joy of the Lord will provide the church a solid foundation. The joy of the Lord will be their strength. So verse 1, it's all nice, you know, rejoice, joy. But then in verse 2, there's this sharp turn, right? Paul says, watch out for the evildoers. And he goes on to call them dogs. Now, in our culture today, for the most part, people like dogs. People have dogs as pets. People enjoy having dogs like that. So in the times of the Old Testament uh, and even in the New Testament, many people did not like dogs because dogs would eat anything. Dogs would eat dead things. Dogs would even eat their own vomit. And in the Old Testament, we see that enemies of Israel were even compared to dogs at times, and not in a nice way. So back then, to call someone a dog was very offensive. And uh, these are very strong words from Paul. So what is provoking Paul to call these group of people dogs? Well, back then, some of the Israelites would call Gentiles, which was the non-Jews, they would call them dogs. And the Jews would call them gent uh, Gentiles dogs because they were unclean and dirty based on their eating and washing habits. So Paul here is taking this insult to Gentiles and turning it back onto them. He calls them dogs and evil doers. But who is Paul talking about? Who are these dogs? Who are these evil doers? Verse 2, it says, it is those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, oftentimes, in order to understand the New Testament fully, you have to understand what was happening in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that God chose the nation of Israel to be his people. God chose Abraham and said he was uh, going to bless his children for, for generations, that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And when uh, God made this covenant with Abraham, God told him there would be a sign, a sign of this covenant, and that would be the circumcision of the males, which was typically done on the eighth day. So this became a part of Jewish culture for the boys uh, to be circumcised on the eighth day as a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. But then, of course, Jesus comes. Jesus, of course, was Jewish, but through his death and resurrection, he established the new covenant that whoever believes in him will have eternal, eternal life, regardless of what country they're from. So this blessing of Abraham through Jesus is now extended to everyone, to Jews and to Gentiles, to everyone. So this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant changed many things. So in the old covenant, there were certain foods that you weren't supposed to eat. But in the new covenant, we read, you can re eat whatever you want. In the old covenant, the law was written on two tablets. In the new covenant, it says the law is written on our hearts through the Holy 
spirit. So there's this transition happening from the old covenant to the new covenant. The problem was here in Philippi that there were Jewish people that were telling the new Gentile Christians, yes, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, but in order to be really saved, you must be circumcised. In other words, it wasn't enough for these Gentiles to follow Jesus, but in order to be a part of the group to be really saved, they had to be circumcised as well. You could call it Jesus plus circumcision. Now, a Jesus plus teaching is anything that tries to add to the teaching of Jesus Christ when it's not simply enough to follow Jesus in order to be saved, but that you have to do other things too. So a Jesus plus teaching could be, yes, you must believe in Jesus, but you also must you know, look a certain way or dress a certain way in order to be really saved. Or a Jesus plus teaching could be, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be baptized. Or Jesus plus could be, yes, you need to be, believe in Jesus, but you also must speak in tongues in order to be saved. Or Jesus plus you can't drink alcohol. Or Jesus plus you must believe in these certain political ideas. You understand the point. The idea is that believing in Christ is not enough. You must do additional things in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. And that leads me to my first point this morning based on verse 2, and that is beware of who you travel with. Beware of who you travel with. Paul says, watch out for these people who teach this stuff. And if you read the New Testament... These guys were a big problem. They were called the, the Judaizers. You can see them in the book of Acts, and you can really see them in the book of Galatians. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul says that the people who were te teaching Jesus plus circumcision were actually teaching a false gospel. Now, you might think, come on, Paul. What's the big deal? I mean, we're in this transition period, right? Old covenant to new covenant, so... What's wrong with, you know, Jesus plus a little circumcision? I mean, come on, Paul, to call them dogs. Isn't this being a little dramatic? Is it wrong? Yes, but a false gospel? Isn't Paul being a bit too dramatic? What's so bad about Jesus plus? Well, we'll get to that answer in a minute, but let's continue as Paul continues here in verse 3 says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul continues the discussion about circumcision and says that we, as believers, we are the circumcision. But it's not about physical circumcision anymore. Membership is through worship, through the Holy Spirit. It's through glorifying Christ. It's not through putting confidence in the flesh. So it's not about physical circumcision anymore. It's about spiritual circumcision, so to speak. As Paul says later in the book of Romans, it's about circumcision of the heart. Which, by the way, was always how God designed it to be. It was never only supposed to be about the physical circumcision in the old covenant. God wanted their hearts as well. But all, along the way, it became less about spiritual circumcision and more about physical circumcision to know if you're in. So Paul is telling the church here, he's telling these Gentile Christians, you don't need to be physically circumcised because you are already circumcised in your heart. We who worship by the Holy Spirit, who boast in Christ, are now the people of God. And then Paul says to believers that we are to put no confidence in the flesh. And here I think the flesh is referring to his Jewish heritage. And of course, circumcision would be a part of that. So Paul is saying that 
Now he boasts in Jesus Christ. Now that he boasts in Christ, there's no reason for him to boast about his Jewish heritage anymore. But, Paul says, if anyone could brag about their Jewish heritage, it would have been Paul. Right? In verse uh, 4, he gives us his Jewish spiritual CV. And he had the ultimate CV. He said that if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it would be him. He was circumcised on the eighth day, as the law said. He belonged to uh, the tribe of, of Benjamin, which was uh, one of only two tribes that did not rebel against the Jewish kingdom. He was, as he says, the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the best of the best. In regards to the law, he was like a Pharisee. He was perfect. And he was so passionate about his Jewish heritage that he persecuted the church before he became a believer in Christ. And in terms of being righteous under the law, Paul was blameless. In other words, if there was anyone who could brag, anyone who could boast about his Jewish heritage, it would have been Paul. Paul says, if you want to compare CVs with him, his wins. He was the best of the best. But after knowing Christ, what does he say about his spiritual CV back then? Verse 7, he says, whatever gain he had, he now counts as loss. Paul is using some business accounting words here. So let's imagine his account is really doing well for all the reasons he enlisted in verse 6. People could look at Paul's account and be very impressed. They could say, wow, look what's in your account. Your account is so much bigger than ours. Look at Paul. But once Paul began to follow Christ, his perception of that account dramatically changed. Paul says all of those things that he thought was boosting his account, was adding to his account, were not actually a profit, a positive, but were actually a loss. Which leads me to my second point, and as we're on the journey of faith, don't pack the wrong things. Don't pack the wrong things. Before knowing Jesus, Paul had spent his life accumulating power, accumulating knowledge, accumulating prestige. He was filling his bag, let's say, with the things of the world, status, importance, and performance. He was the best of the best, as he said, in terms of the world all of the wrong things. He looks back on his old life and sees that all of that energy was a waste. You know that today the world wants you to chase after all of those same things, to chase after power, to chase after prestige, to chase after possessions, after knowledge, after uh, high performance, after self-importance. And it can be so tempting for us to chase after all of those things too especially when the people around you are striving for those same things. And at the time, his advice is those things can't and won't satisfy you. They will just leave you empty, for only Christ can satisfy your soul. Paul says, don't waste your life accumulating things. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their soul. Don't pack the wrong things in this life. So what should we take with us on this journey of faith? Verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of this and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Back at all that stuff. And, and uh, these are very strong words from Paul. So what is provoking Paul to call these group of people dogs? Well, back then, some of the Israelites would call Gentiles, which was the non-Jews, they would call them dogs. And the Jews would call them gent- uh, Gentiles dogs because they were unclean and dirty based on their eating and washing habits. So Paul here is taking this insult to Gentiles and turning it back on to them. He calls them dogs and evil doers. But who is Paul talking about? Who are these dogs? Who are these evil doers? Verse 2, it says, it is those who mutilate the flesh. Now what does that mean? Well, oftentimes, in order to understand the New Testament fully, you have to understand what was happening in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, we see that God chose the nation of Israel to be his people. God chose Abraham and said he was uh, going to bless his children for, for generations, that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And when uh, God made this covenant with Abraham, God told him there would be a sign, a sign of this covenant, and that would be the circumcision of the males, which was typically done on the eighth day. So this became a part of Jewish culture for the boys uh, to be circumcised on the eighth day as a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. But then, of course, Jesus comes. Jesus, of course, was Jewish, but through his death and resurrection, he established the new covenant that whoever believes in him will have eternal, eternal life, regardless of what country they're from. So this blessing of Abraham through Jesus is now extended to everyone, to Jews and to Gentiles, to everyone. So this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant changed many things. So in the old covenant, there were certain foods that you weren't supposed to eat. But in the new covenant, we read you can re eat whatever you want. In the old covenant, the law was written on two tablets. In the new covenant, it says the law is written on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So there's this transition happening from the old covenant to the new covenant. The problem was here in Philippi that there were Jewish people that were telling the new Gentile Christians, yes, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, but in order to be really saved, you must be circumcised. In other words, it wasn't enough for these Gentiles to follow Jesus, but in order to be a part of the group to be really saved, they had to be circumcised as well. You could call it Jesus plus circumcision. Now, a Jesus plus teaching is anything that tries to add to the teaching of Jesus Christ when it's not simply enough to follow Jesus in order to be saved, but that you have to do other things too. So a Jesus plus teaching could be, yes, you must believe in Jesus, but you also must, you know, look a certain way or dress a certain way in order to be really saved. Or a Jesus plus teaching could be, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be baptized. Or Jesus plus could be, yes, you need to be, believe in Jesus, but you also must speak in tongues in order to be saved. Or Jesus plus you can't drink alcohol. Or Jesus plus you must believe in these certain political ideas. You understand the point. The idea is that believing in Christ is not enough. You must do additional things in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. And that leads me to my first point this morning based on verse 2, and that is beware of who you travel with. Beware of who you travel with. Paul says, watch out for these people who teach this stuff. And if you read the New Testament, these guys were a big problem. They were called the, the Judaizers. You can see them in the book of Acts, and you can really see them in the book of Galatians. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul says that the people who were te teaching Jesus plus circumcision were actually teaching a false gospel. Now, you might think, come on, Paul, what's the big deal? I mean, we're in this transition period, right? Old covenant to new covenant. So what's wrong with, you know, Jesus plus a little circumcision? I mean, come on, Paul, to call them dogs, isn't this being a little dramatic. Is it wrong? Yes, but a false gospel? Isn't Paul being a bit too dramatic? What's so bad about Jesus plus? Well, we'll get to that answer in a minute, but let's continue as Paul continues here in verse 3. It says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. 
So Paul continues the discussion about circumcision and says that we, as believers, we are the circumcision. But it's not about physical circumcision anymore. Membership is through worship, through the Holy Spirit. It's through glorifying Christ. It's not through putting confidence in the flesh. So it's not about physical circumcision anymore. It's about spiritual circumcision, so to speak. As Paul says later in the book of Romans, it's about circumcision of the heart, which, by the way, was always how God designed it to be. It was never only supposed to be about the physical circumcision in the old covenant. God wanted their hearts as well. But all, along the way, it became less about spiritual circumcision and more about physical circumcision to know if you're in. So Paul is telling the church here, he's telling these Gentile Christians, you don't need to be physically circumcised because you are already circumcised in your heart. We who worship by the Holy Spirit, who boast in Christ, are now the people of God. And then Paul says to believers that we are to put no confidence in the flesh. And here I think the flesh is referring to his Jewish heritage. And of course, circumcision would be a part of that. So Paul is saying that now he boasts in Jesus Christ. Now that he boasts in Christ, there's no reason for him to boast about his Jewish heritage anymore. But, Paul says, if anyone could brag about their Jewish heritage, it would have been Paul. Right? In verse uh, 4, he gives us his Jewish spiritual CV. And he had the ultimate CV. He said that if anyone could have confidence in the flesh... It would be him. He was circumcised on the eighth day, as the law said. He belonged to uh, the tribe of, of Benjamin, which was uh, one of only two tribes that did not rebel against the Jewish kingdom. He was, as he says, the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the best of the best. In regards to the law, he was like a Pharisee. He was perfect. And he was so passionate about his Jewish heritage that he persecuted the church before he became a believer in Christ. And in terms of being righteous under the law, Paul was blameless. In other words, if there was anyone who could brag, anyone who could boast about his Jewish heritage, it would have been Paul. Paul says, if you want to compare CVs with him, his wins. He was the best of the best. But after knowing Christ, what does he say about his spiritual CV back then? Verse 7, he says, whatever gain he had, he now counts as loss. Paul is using some business accounting words here. So let's imagine his account is really doing well for all the reasons he enlisted in verse 6. People could look at Paul's account and be very impressed. They could say, wow, look what's in your account. Your account is so much bigger than ours. Look at Paul. But once Paul began to follow Christ, his perception of that account dramatically changed. Paul says all of the things that he thought was boosting his account, was adding to his account, were not actually a profit, a positive, but were actually a loss. Which leads me to my second point. And as we're on the journey of faith, don't pack the wrong things. Don't pack the wrong things. Before knowing Jesus, Paul had spent his life accumulating power, accumulating knowledge, accumulating prestige. He was filling his bag, let's say, with the things of the world, status, important, importance, and performance. He was the best of the best, as he said, in terms of the world. But once he met Christ, he realized that he was accumulating all of the wrong things. He looks back on his old life and sees that all of that energy was a waste. You know that today the world wants you to chase after all of those same things, to chase after power, to chase after prestige, to chase after possessions, after knowledge, after uh, high performance, after self-importance. And it can be so tempting for us to chase after all of those things too, especially when the people around you are striving for those same things. And it might seem fulfilling at the time even as you're doing it. But take Paul's advice that those things can't and won't satisfy you. They will just leave you empty, for only Christ can satisfy your soul. Paul says, 
Don't waste your life accumulating the wrong things. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? Don't pack the wrong things in this life. So what should we take with us on this journey of faith? Verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So not only does Paul view his past accomplishments and consider them lost, but we read in verse 8, he actually lost things too. He lost his power. He lost his status. He probably lost his, his friends. But Paul isn't complaining about that here. On the contrary, Paul looks back at all that stuff and says that stuff is rubbish. It's garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 9, Paul compares a righteousness that comes from the law versus a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. What's the difference? Well, a righteousness that comes from the law is that which I can do in my own power. So you know the commands of God, and you try your best not to lie. You try your best not to steal. You try your best not to covet and so on. And maybe you'll have a little bit of success in this, but ultimately you will fail. You will sin. I will sin. I will fail. We will not do the law perfectly. Oftentimes the more we try, the worse it goes. And for many people in the world today, this is how they understand God. They think that they have to be a good person in order to be accepted by God. So they try their best. They try to do all of the commands, but inevitably, they fall short. They can't do it. And sadly, some of those people get discouraged and quit and walk away. But the sad thing is, is God never created you to be righteous in your own power. The gospel, the good news, is that God sent his son Christ, who was without sin, who kept the law perfectly for us. He died on the cross for our sin, was buried, rose three days later. By repenting of your sin, believing in him, Jesus can save you. Jesus can give you his righteousness. It's the greatest trade ever. You could say it's the most unequal trade ever. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Let me say it a, a, a different way. When you go to the money machine, when you go to the bankomat to get, to get money out, right, oftentimes a receipt will be printed and it will tell you how much money you have in your account uh, after that transaction. Sometimes the information on the receipt is encouraging. Sometimes it's very discouraging. Either way, the information is accurate. The receipt tells the truth about what's in your account. So let's imagine that today there was a, a printout of the account balance of your spiritual life. What would the account balance be? Would it say that there's a positive balance, a neutral balance, a zero balance, or a negative balance? So what Paul is saying here is that if your account is full of all of your accomplishments, if your account is full of all of the great things you have done in your life, even spiritual things, if your account is full of righteousness that comes from your doing, from your power, your account actually has a negative balance. If there's no Jesus in your account, if your account is all about you, right, you will be condemned. This is a negative balance. But if you look at your receipt and the, and the balance is positive, that means there is only one thing that is in your account, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That leads me to my third point. In this journey of faith, you really need only one thing. 
When I stand before God at judgment, there is only one thing that matters if it's in my account or not, and that is Jesus Christ. How am I saved? Verse 9, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The reason that Paul is so firm against Jesus plus circumcision is because Jesus plus anything is not the gospel anymore. It's not good news because it stops being about what Christ has done and it starts to be about what I can do. Or to use Paul's language here, it becomes about a righteousness of my own that comes from the law instead of the righteousness of God that depends on faith in Christ. There's this good book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. It's a great title. It's such a great title, you don't even have to read the book. You can just learn it from the title. Basically, Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. Jesus plus anything goes back to the righteousness of my own. But Jesus plus nothing equals the good news of the gospel. You can't add to the cross what Jesus did on the cross by dying for your sin that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. There's nothing incomplete about that. You don't need to add anything to it. And we see here the moment you add something to it, it stops being good news. It stops being the gospel. Paul says in Galatians, it starts to be a false gospel. The truth is, on this journey of faith, you only need to pack one thing, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who believe in him, he gives it to you freely. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says that he wants to know Christ more. When the Bible talks about knowing Christ, it's not merely knowing about Christ or knowing facts about Jesus. It's about knowing him experientially. Knowing Jesus is about having a relationship with him, walking with him, following him. It's interesting to remember that Paul had been a Christian for probably about 30 years when he wrote this letter. And yet Paul still wants to know Jesus more. He still wants to go deeper with Christ. You know, there's never a moment in the Christian life where you graduate. There's never a moment in the Christian life where you reach the end of knowing Christ. There's never a moment when you say, that's it, I know enough. No, we're always seeking to know him more. We're always seeking to grow as we walk by faith. But that's not the only thing Paul wants to know. He wants us to know the power of his resurrection. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that God is working in us. But Paul adds a third thing to his list. He says he wants to share in the sufferings of Christ to be like Jesus in his death. So what does that mean? Is Paul some kind of masochist that is seeking pain? I don't think so. Paul has said that he wants to know Christ more, and part of Jesus' life on earth included suffering. We see that at its pinnacle on the cross. Paul understands that suffering is a part of the Christian life. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that if anyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer. We don't need to seek suffering, because if you live long enough, suffering will come. But when you do suffer, you can be comforted knowing that Jesus knows what it's like. We can identify with Christ even in our suffering. So Paul, in essence, is saying, if it takes suffering to know Jesus more, then I will suffer in order to know Jesus more. In verse 11, Paul says that he wants to do all of these things that he might attain the resurrection of the dead. We know from 1 Corinthians 15 that when Christ returns as believers, we will be uh, resurrected and united with Christ in transformed bodies. So Paul here is focusing on his eternal future with Christ. He looks forward to the day when Christ returns and that he will be resurrected in his transformed body. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. Paul will come back to this topic in verse 21. But in verse 12, he reminds the Philippians and us that he has not been resurrected from the dead yet, that there is still more work to do. Look at verse 12 with me. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have gained. Paul is saying, look, I have these goals. I want to know Christ more. I want to share in his sufferings. I want the resurrection from the dead. But I'm not there yet. I still have work to do. In other words, Paul isn't just staring out the window, thinking about the future and just counting down the days for his resurrected body. On the, on the contrary, Paul says, hey, I'm not dead yet, so let's get to work. In verse 12, Paul says that he presses on. There is movement in those words. There is spiritual progress. He is going somewhere on his journey of faith. And in verse 13, Paul says, not only does he not stare out the window thinking about his future, he also doesn't just stare out the window thinking about his past. In order to keep going, he says that he forgets what lies behind. That brings me to my fourth point this morning, and that is we must travel light on this journey of faith. We must travel light on this journey of faith. You know, maybe some of you have been on one of those cheap uh, airlines before. On those cheap airlines, the flights are really, really cheap. The cost of the ticket isn't so much. The way they make their money is from the baggage. Sometimes the baggage is like 10 times more than the cost of the actual flight. But usually they offer one free, you know, personal item when you buy your ticket. And it's usually this kind of small, tiny suitcase. And once uh, a long time ago, my wife and I were traveling. We didn't want to pay for, for extra baggage. So we tried to pack everything into this, you know, small, tiny suitcase. And when you're at the airport, they have this kind of, you know, mold, and you have to put your suitcase in there to make sure it fits. If it doesn't fit, then you have to pay for the extra baggage. And when I put my bag uh, in there, it didn't really fit. And the lady from, from the airline said, sir, you're going to need to, you know, pay for extra baggage. And I was like, okay. Just give me a minute. I'm going to make this thing fit. So for the next five minutes, I'm pushing this thing in. I'm taking stuff out. I'm putting on, you know, five, wearing five shirts now just to make everything fit. And I pushed and squeezed until it was all the way in that mold. And the lady from the airline, she had probably seen this a million times. And she says, all right, fine, you know, and, and lets me go through. Of course, it takes another five minutes for me to, to pull that bag out. Right, normally when people travel, we don't just pack a few things. Instead, we tend to pack everything to the max. And if everything doesn't fit in that bag, then we pay for another bag. But even in that bag, we pack it to the max. My point is that traveling light, traveling with not much stuff, doesn't come easy for us. I would say it doesn't come naturally for us. And I don't think it comes naturally for us, spiritually, as well. We know that through the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. He carried our sin. He carried our baggage, let's say, to the cross and paid for them. But it can be so easy in our lives to keep carrying that old guilt and shame with us in the Christian journey. But that old baggage can be so heavy, so heavy that it slows you down from going forward. You know, in order for God to take you where he wants you to go, he wants you to travel light. When you travel light, you can run because you aren't carrying all that baggage with you. Now, when Paul says forgetting what lies behind, I don't think Paul is saying that when we become believers, we sort of instantly think about the past and we never remember our mistakes or sins anymore. I don't think it means that. What I think it means, what I think Paul means is that we are no longer controlled by the past. We don't have to carry all of that old baggage with us. You can run forward knowing that the past doesn't define you anymore. You can let that old stuff go. One author says, too many Christians are prisoners of their regrets in the past. They're trying to run the race by looking backwards. No wonder they stumble and fall. You know, as believers, our sins have been 100% paid for by Jesus Christ 
on the cross. He carried those sins so you don't have to carry them no more. You don't have to look back. You are free to run with no chains and no hindrances. Paul is not looking in the past. Instead, he says he's straining forward. He keeps going. He keeps growing. Paul isn't looking at other runners, comparing them to himself. He's not thinking, oh, I'm better than that person. I'll never be as fast as that person. He's not doing that. He's running the race that God has marked out for him. He keeps pursuing the prize. He says in verse 14, he's pressing on towards the goal for the prize. You know, the image that comes to mind is, a, is an Olympic runner who is running and pressing on. The, the runner can see the finish line. The runner knows what he needs to do. And he gets cl- as he gets closer to the finish line, he doesn't slow down. No, he, he strains forward. He's, he's reaching for the goal. He's reaching for the prize. Paul is telling the church, I haven't finished the race yet. I am still running. And Paul's prize for fulfilling the purpose that God has for him is to experience the fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, lately, since it's been nice weather in the morning, I've been taking uh, my daughters to preschool in their bikes. And it's about a kilometer and a a half, so it, it, it takes some time. And they're just starting to learn how to ride their bikes. So, of course, there's sometimes when they fall, there's times when they want to stop. And we've been doing this a few days. So when they fall, now I always ask them the same thing. And by now, they, they almost know the answer. And I just ask them, what do we do when we fall? And they say, we get up and we keep going. And pretty soon... They're back riding again. But my lesson for them in that moment isn't just about riding bikes. I hope I'm teaching them a lesson about life. Even more so, I hope I'm teaching them a spiritual lesson like Paul is teaching us here to to keep going, to strain forward, to press on towards the goal of knowing Christ. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you've fallen down in this journey time and time again. Maybe something's happened in your life and you just feel like stopping. Maybe even you feel like quitting. Or maybe you're running the race, but you just feel tired and weary. And maybe other people in your lives have just given up. But God calls you to get up, to keep going, to finish the race that he has for you. It won't always be easy, but it's always worth it to keep going, to keep growing, continuing to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He will carry you through whatever you're going through. Press on. Paul says we should all have this mindset. He says that mature Christians should have this mindset. But for those who aren't mature yet, they should have this attitude too. Spiritual growth is for everybody. Looking around this room, we're all at different points in the journey. But no matter where you are in that journey today, God is calling each one of us to go further with him, to trust him more, to keep going, to keep growing. I mean, if the apostle Paul can look at his spiritual journey and say, hey, I haven't finished the race yet. I still need to grow. There's still more work to do. I think we can all be honest and know that there are still parts of our life that God wants to grow us in to redeem, that he There's things in your life that God is calling you to trust him with. Why? So we can know Christ more. We can know God's power so we can share in his suffering. How is God wanting to grow you this morning? What is God revealing to you today? Look at me at at our last verses. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have uh, often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him uh, even to subject all things to himself. Earlier, Paul says, look, I'm not perfect. But then he tells the church to follow his example and to be the examples 
to others. While, of course, as believers, there's many things we need to be taught uh, of what is true, much of the Christian life can be learned by following other believers' good examples. As they say, you know, most things are caught, not taught, which means that we sometimes learn more by watching other people's examples than by being lectured to or taught. And of course, this can be a negative thing or a positive thing. It all depends on the example. But we know from chapter 2, Paul was a great example, for, for example, to, to Timothy, whom Paul mentored. And we know that Paul's example was the example of Christ Jesus. But I think all of us in here today are examples for other people's people. Even if you don't realize it, even if you don't want to be, even if you don't believe it, people are watching you. They're watching to see how you live out your faith. So then the question becomes for us, what kind of example are you? I read this book a few years ago uh, where the author talked about growing up in a Christian home. And he wrote this. He said, the worst kind of Christian home to grow up in is one where there are large spiritual pretensions, but low spiritual performance. The best kind of Christian home to grow up in is the one where there are low spiritual pretensions, but quite high spiritual performance, because the best stuff is caught, not taught. What the author was saying was that his parents were not the type of people who thought they were these great spiritual people, but then lived lives that contradicted that. Instead, his parents didn't think of themselves as very great. They didn't think they were such great spiritual people. But the humble way they lived their lives made such an impact on their son in a positive way. I think this is a good model for us as we try to be examples to other people. We don't need to try to be spiritual superstars who say great quotes or, uh, uh, but then live a different way. Instead, we are called to be humble people and to trust that God is doing the work in our lives and that will shine to other people. In verse 18, Paul changes from talking about good examples to bad examples. Perhaps these people were the people who wanted their church to be circumcised, or perhaps they were people who claimed to be Christians, but it became clear they weren't. Either way, they were not headed down the right path, and that gives Paul pain. He says he's in tears about it. Instead of thinking about their future hope in heaven, their potential hope, they set their mind on earthly things, which will ultimately be their destruction. It was people who were consumed with the present world rather than the future that was to come. In other words, they were packing their suitcase with all the wrong things. Paul closes out Philippians 3 with the reminder that they are citizens of heaven and that there is more to life than this world. And that leads me to my last point this morning on how to travel well, and that is remember your passport. Remember your passport. Don't forget where your true citizenship lies. We have a citizenship in heaven. We have a future home. We will know God fully. We will see him face to face in our glorified, transformed bodies. Our, our hearts will be full. You know, it's, it's really easy to forget that, to be consumed with this world, to complain about the world, all the problems in this world. And, and can you believe this happened in our world? We have a citizenship in heaven that awaits us. Instead of being people of cynicism, instead of people of being people who complain and people who say, oh, this is going to be the end of the world, we should be people of hope, people who can point to where we're going, people who can point to Christ and say, yes, this world is fallen and broken, but we have a citizenship in a heaven. And what awaits us there is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was Paul's hope, and this is our hope. While our passports might say Poland or Netherlands or Spain, these are only temporary places for us. Our citizenship is in heaven where a Savior awaits. So in your suffering today, keep going. In your triumphs today, press on. Press on towards the goal. Share in the sufferings of Christ with joy. Follow where Christ is leading you. Strain ahead. Follow God, godly examples and be a godly example to others. 
Don't give up, even if you're tired. If you fall down, get up and keep going. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Beware of who you travel with. Beware of false teachers preaching a Jesus plus message. This is not the gospel. Don't pack the wrong things. Don't go through this life trying to accumulate power, possessions, or prestige. These things don't last. What you need the most, as we read, is the righteousness of Christ, which he freely trades for you, for your sin, when you believe in him. Travel light. Don't carry the guilt and shame that Jesus already paid for on the cross because you have a citizenship in heaven. We have a future hope. If you do these things, if you believe these things, you will indeed be a good traveler. You will indeed travel well wherever the Lord leads you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and, and lead us in a song of response to God's word. And in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. It's a time when you're invited to, to come forward and respond to what the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart. You know, maybe this morning you're realizing you've been packing all the wrong things into your life. You've been filling your life chasing after power, after things, after importance. And maybe today you realize for the first time that the only thing you need is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If this morning God is moving you to turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ as Savior, I invite you to come forward. Or maybe this morning you realize you haven't been traveling very light and you feel tired and you feel like giving up. We would love to pray with you too. I invite you to come forward. How will you respond to what God is putting on your heart? However God is leading you, I'll be over here in the front. Jerry will be over here to meet you as you come. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for um, the truths in your word. God, we want to be people who, who travel light. We want to be about the main thing. We want to be about uh, you. Father, we confess it's so easy to, to fill our lives up with things that don't last, things that don't matter ultimately. Um, but God, we want to fill up our life with you. The only thing that matters is that the righteousness of Christ is in our account. Um, help us to remember our citizenship in heaven, Lord, that you are with us and that you are for us. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.